Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. A couple of episodes ago, I was chatting with Anne Mendelssohn about her book Spoiled, which looks at the rise of fresh liquid milk and how it isn't really the superfood it's cracked up to be. And at the end, we were wondering whether there was any future for what we called at the time small milk. And we thought that probably, yeah, there was. And lo, very soon after that, I read an article about Salt Rock Dairy in Ireland. They sell whole milk, pasteurized, not raw, but not homogenized either, and they sell it direct to customers. Obviously, I had to talk to them. Hi, I'm Catherine Kensler, um, and myself and Paul are dairy, have a dairy farm on the southeast coast of Ireland, um, just outside Gory. And Gory, in case you're wondering, is about two-thirds of the way down, between Dublin and Wexford. Of course, I wanted to know how and why Kath Kinsler got into the business of small milk. We started in dairy about 10 years ago and somewhere along the way, I just, I just found it really frustrating. I suppose I grew up on a dairy farm drinking good quality milk straight from the bulk tank, um, knew what milk tastes like. And then for the years in between was buying milk in the supermarket and just kind of, I suppose, hadn't paid a whole lot of heed to the quality. I would have always bought full fat, one of the better quality milks because I knew a lot of them were rubbish. Um, but it was when we started dairy in 2013 and suddenly we were drinking our own milk again, raw, um, obviously not pasteurised or anything. It was before it went to the dairy. And I was there going, why can people not buy this in a supermarket? Like, I couldn't, and I knew that what we are producing was no different than what every other farmer in Ireland is producing, and yet nobody can buy it. And I just found this crazy. So it took a good few years for me to get around to it, but two years ago... I took the leap. Um, I suppose we were looking at, we did look at systems of maybe bottling and it was all quite labour intensive. I was working full time and I suppose that was where we needed to be financially with four kids, etc, etc. Um, so, yeah, we saw a system happening in the UK where it was a milk vending system where you can leave a vending unit available with the milk pasteurised and in the tank, direct from the farm, and people can just come and fill their bottles. And I love this. So how does that? How does it actually work? I mean, if I want to get some of your milk, yeah. Um, how does it work? For us, how we're doing it is we have a vending unit in a trailer, which is mobile. So I take the milk from the dairy where Paul milks, and I pasteurize it in the pasteurizing unit. I transfer it into a two hundred liter tank, which then goes into this vending unit and literally you you go and you can tap a car you press a button requ require point out that you need um a liter of milk or a half liter of milk tap your card or drop in coins and the machine dispenses your milk you know it's as simple as that now this is non-homogenized so you're back to the kind of the cream rising to the top and i suppose Part of that is that the idea is people are using the same bottle all the time to get their milk. So it's eliminating the plastic, it's eliminating the Tetra Pak. 
we have the bottles there people can buy them but like that if as long as somebody as long as it fits into the compartment for the bottle i don't it doesn't matter what they use to fill it they don't have to use our bottles as so you don't care whether their bottles are really clean <laughs> I, I suppose i don't i would i would leave instruction on it to, that to only use clean bottles because in the long run are they going to take responsibility when the milk is going off because the bottle was dirty or are they going to say oh gosh um, salt drop milk didn't last beyond two days um so yeah look i i and i i would facilitate in the marketing i do a market once a week in gory which is a really good day for me um, and that's where I'd meet the customers. And there, if somebody came in with a, a bottle that wasn't clean, I wouldn't actually fill it because that kind of that's my responsibility then. But no, I suppose it is it is up to themselves. But you find the people who care enough to come to get fresh, good quality milk care enough to make sure their bottle is clean. <laughs> Do you know? And and you you mentioned that your milk is pasteurized but not homogenized so you get the cream rising to the top lovely um was that a i mean is it too difficult to sell unpasteurized raw milk in ireland oh yeah it's very very difficult um yeah no the the, the regulations are very very tight even to get approval um yeah i mean i know i did just vaguely mentioned it to my department of ag inspector when we were setting up and he was kind of working with us to set up and um his response was very much there'll never be raw milk sold in my patch and so yeah there's a huge demand for it um i don't know the science behind it but there's a lot of research going into gut health and the connection between gut health and mental health and certainly raw milk would contribute to that um It'll be very interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any particular feeling either way. I just, as a, as you say, I know a lot of people are very keen on raw milk. Um, but to me, just having unhomogenized milk would be a treat. But there you go. It is, it is a treat. And, and like, it's, it, yeah, I still find it so frustrating when I talk to customers, especially new customers who are going, Gosh, Catherine, your milk is incredible. I've never tasted milk like that. And go, oh, but this is no different than what's been produced all across the country. And I just, like, and as dairy hygiene, like dairy hygiene has improved and improved and improved. Like, I'm 54 years of age and I grew up drinking milk from the tank 50 years ago. <laughs> and it was good uh, dairy hygiene was good then like my dad would have been good at dairy hygiene but it has increased and increased and increased and as it has increased the quality of our milk available to the consumer has decreased <laughs> so, so there's a complete lack of logic there like why interfere with a really good quality product stop interfering with it <laughs> and and yet although your milk tastes wonderful and people are amazed by it i i i read that you also have flavoured syrups that people can put in the milk. Now, why, why is that a good idea? Why is that a good idea? Because it's a really good marketing idea. It, it is, it, it's what draws the younger people to actually come and try the milk. Yeah, I, I, I find it hard to stand over it. Um, and what I would always say sort of to parents who are trying to get kids to drink milk and say, well, look, they'll drink the strawberry milk or they'll drink the chocolate milk, but I can't get them. I said, well, look, if you're, if you're getting 475 mils of good milk in for the 25 mils of horrible syrup, well, 
<laughs> you're doing something for them um, and and they will eventually wean them off the syrup wean them off it and they will eventually realize that milk is actually a sweet product in itself milk isn't like milk doesn't need sweetness it is an actual sweet product um so yeah yeah i find it hard to stand over it really um except that it, it sells more milk <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i i mean maybe maybe parents can slowly reduce a bit like giving up cigarettes slowly reduce the amount of syrup in the milk yeah and it's frequently it's not like certainly with parents and they can control it um but a lot of it is the older teenagers young adults like they don't seem to buy milk in the supermarket except the mojus and do you know, all the flavored milks they buy the chocolate milks and so they've never really gotten used to drinking regular milk and they're the ones i can really kind of pull <laughs> into sort of say look just this week will you just fill it with plain milk and come back and tell me what you think next week do you know and that'd be the piece in the market i mean when it's when it's out on the road, you know, when it's out parked in various sites around the area during the week and it's self-service, obviously, I, I've no kind of really connection with the customers. But in the market, I get a great kick out of kind of pushing the, the young adult to look just this week, fill one bottle with just plain milk and come back. And invariably, they come back and refill with plain milk, invariably. But I think it's, it's, it, they need to be conditioned. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about the cows and, 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 the, and the farm. Um, how many cows do you have? So at, at peak milking, we'll be milking 72. And how do you manage the ups and downs over the year? I mean, the natural sort of cow-calf cycle... Do you do you have to do anything about that, or do you just go with the flow and have less milk in the winter and more milk in the summer and spring and summer? Yeah, you have less milk in the winter, so we'd be starting to what we call dry off the cows at the moment, and um, so they milk for sort of ten months of the year. So the the cows that will be calving in January, we'll say, they by the end of October they will be milking. We've we've some early we've some autumn calvers who are already dry. So they're not being milked at the moment. So your peak milking is probably, I suppose, around May, June. You've all the calving has been done. You have have peak milking at that stage. A lot of farmers would actually go fully dry for maybe a month or six weeks in the winter. We never have. Um, but from a from a farmer's quality of life point of view, it's probably a very good idea, really, because that's the only break they kind of get in the year. Um, and probably before I started this, my side of the business, um, I probably was encouraging Paul to do it. Now I need him to keep producing milk. <laughs> so I'm not as encouraging of it. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's how, how it goes. I mean, a cow will produce uh, between five and 7,000 litres across 10 months of the year. And do you, do you have a, a, a special or different market for your calves? Or are they just... I mean... I'm trying to get a sense for whether the farm as a whole is innovative in this way or whether it's just the milk selling. Yeah. Um, well, we'd, we'd be very lucky with the selling of our calves. I mean, obviously, we, we keep a certain number of the heifer calves for replacements for ourselves. But really, 90 plus percent of our calves are sold at the yard um, and sold to the same other farmers each year who come back. Um, some would be buying them for beef and I suppose 
Paul where most of our uh, cows are artificially inseminated and Paul does that himself so he will choose which ones will sort of have a beef bull to them a kind of and then if that that will go on to the certain farmers so we'd be yeah I mean is it innovative um yes it's from from a calf welfare it's, it's much easier on the conscience to know where the calves are going um as well as that, from a time-saving point of view, there's an awful lot to be said for somebody coming to the yard and buying the cows rather than Paul having to bring them to a mart. Or, do you know, uh, from that perspective. And do your, again, do your, do your cows, do they have a kind of average long lifespan in the herd? Um, slightly more, slightly less? I mean, um, we are 10 years now milking um, and... There would still be some of the old stuff that we would have bought in at that stage. So, but I'd say probably on average about seven, eight years um, milking, and then they'd probably go on for fattening for beef after that, really. Um, they'd be the cull cows. So, yeah, I mean, we're not, I suppose, and most of our in would be the same. I mean, if you look at the states or that, um, or even across continental Europe, some of the, the really big systems. I mean, you're looking at a turnover of between two and three years. Like, yeah, they really pull the goodness out of them in a very short space of time. But I suppose we would be quite, yeah, a low-intensive farming system. You're looking and almost all grass-fed. Almost all grass-fed. It totally weather-dependent how long they spend outside. But then when they go inside, it's almost totally, as well, silage. So it's fermented grass fed as well. Now, you said that um, you said that you're still supplying dairy. So roughly, roughly, what's the balance between milk that you sell direct and milk that you send to a, um, a dairy? We'd only be selling between 6 and 10% um, direct to the customer. Um, but hopefully that's going to ramp up. There's, there's, I'm looking at moving smaller dispensary units into smaller shops over the coming months and try and increase the, the volume that we're actually selling direct to the customer. So you, you, you've got a long way to go to use... I mean, are you probably not thinking of expanding the farm then? No, no. I, I suppose... We, we're kind of between two stools at, at the age group we're at in that they were certainly not looking at expanding what we're doing from the farm point of view. But if we could increase the volume we're selling direct to the consumer, obviously the margin is going to be better. So then we could actually look at reducing cow numbers. And as, as we get older, like we're not really sure where succession is for us and who if, if there's somebody going to come back home one of the kids to farm or not how long do we want to go on farming if we want to go on farming kind of in the long run you obviously want the easiest system possible so that'll be the less intensive system so if we could reduce count numbers and still be making the same income then that would be where the balance would be at from a personal financial level and then obviously I mean this whole move like from a climate change point of view and derogation and everything it's getting more and more difficult for farmers to be intensive and um, so we will it'd be much easier because of where we're at 
it's not that difficult for us to actually comply with the new regulations. We're kind of we're within them anyway. Um, it's the farmers who have expanded and expanded and expanded over the last 10-15 years who are very, very challenged at the moment. And and what about um, other products? I mean, if you've got a lot of milk, I'm, I'm thinking butter maybe, or, or even cheese. My, my, my big passion would be to get to the point of making butter. I would make my own butter here as it is. Um, I, I've been playing with some... Uh, Greek style yogurt which has really went down well when I've tested it on the market so yeah the next next number of months are going to be really interesting for me I'm going to work with Chalgask which is um, our kind of I suppose advisory body um, in product development and yeah but I, I, I grew up myself with my mum making butter um, and I just love that I love butter anyway um, but especially love farmers butter and and the homemade. So um, yeah, I'm hoping by the spring when we have uh, we're going back to sort of peak production and cream will be at its highest, I might have a, a new product on the market. That that'd be my dream. And but my dream would be like while yes, I wanted, as I said to somebody, yes, I want to make butter sexy again. Um, I really. I still want to make sure the whole thing remains local. I suppose my big, bigger dream um, is that I can pr- prove that a small dairy system producing multiple dairy products can be financially viable and, and try and get a model that could be repeated all across the country by other firms. Like I don't want to be selling milk or yogurt or butter to Donegal do you know, I want it to be sold in the southeast of Ireland. Um, That's interesting because my, my last question to have you had any interest from other dairy farmers? Oh, loads. Oh, loads. Yeah, yeah. It, no. Uh, now, there are. I'm not on my own. Um, I'm probably I'm the only one that's mobile, as in I'm the only one that actually moves the unit around the area to the customer. But I think there's probably 11 or 12 with vending units at their farm gate around the country and yes I've had so many coming and inquiring about it hard one to advise them really because it has taken an awful lot more time like it, it sounds like a simple process but it's not because the whole marketing side the whole paperwork and yeah compliant regulations and everything it's 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 not something a, a farmer who's already working full-time farming can actually take on board. There needs to be somebody else within the system that can do it. Um, but look, there is definitely space. There's definitely room for it to happen, I think. And I think the consumer is ready to pay proper price for proper product. Cass Kinsler. And I should add that her milk is actually about the same price per litre as the so-called premier milk in a local supermarket. I do find it interesting that there are 11 or 12 other farmers in Ireland doing similar things, selling milk direct to the public. Maybe small milk is on the rise. I've been trying to find other examples, but without much luck. My own local small milk delivery is raw milk, but I'd love to hear about others around the world doing pasteurized milk direct. Drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. 
My thanks to Kath Kinsler for being so willing to chat, and to Caroline Hennessy, who wrote the article I saw, for putting us in touch. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, which you can find at eatthispodcast.com. Thanks also to the people who support Eat This Podcast with a donation. They help to keep things afloat and to provide a transcript for anybody who wants one. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts, because that really helps to find new listeners. But that's enough from me. I'm going to give Kath Kinsler the last word. Like I think there is, I, it, it does, I think there's terror available. Um, I'm sure there's an Irish version word of terror. <laughs> Do you know, like definitely, like across a year, butter tastes different. Like I, I can so remember, we were always, we always knew kind of the taste of butter for the spring, the taste of butter in the winter. And certainly now I would imagine as cows go in and they're on silage, I'm not sure butter would taste as good as the spring butter. Um, so, like, and then add that, add, we'll say, where we live, it's right on the coast, the salt air, you know, the herbs that naturally grow in the grassland um, in our area would be very different to that in Tipperary, we'll say. So, I, and we've lost all of that. Everything has become standardised. Milk has become standardised. Um, butter is standardised. Like, yeah, individual flavour seems to have kind of got lost in dairy, and that's a shame.